Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus, where we will discuss your red hot Toronto Blue Jays. If certain members of that Toronto Blue Jays team can get out of their own way and stop making uh, the team and the games and Pride Weekend about themselves and their loudness. It's weird to sit with the fact that the Blue Jays have scarcely played baseball as well as they have over the last two weeks, uh, over the last couple of years, even things when things have been going very well to go 10 and three against a pretty tough stretch of schedule while your ACE is ineffective and then sent to the minors. That should be the topic around this team, but Anthony Bass keeps sharing things and then digging in and then giving half apologies and the focus goes that way. You might want to turn the page from that, but it's Pride Weekend with the Blue Jays today, and all eyes will be, or beginning today, all eyes will be on them. Uh, We heard Anthony Bass speak yesterday. We heard Ross Atkins speak yesterday. We know Anthony Bass will be catching the first pitch tonight, which I'm sure there are a lot of opinions on on that decision and um, what went into it and whether that decision would have been different after hearing Anthony Bass basically triple down on his beliefs yesterday. However, um. The Toronto Blue Jays continue to win despite that. By the way, notable that Anthony Bass has not been a part of that. They have barely pitched him. They have barely, they haven't used him in leverage since the wild card game. Um, I'm not exaggerating. He has not pitched in leverage ever. Um, anyway, this is, it's a weird thing to be carrying these three things at once where the Toronto Blue Jays are playing very, very good baseball, a pride weekend in general, and, and some of the activations and community involvement that'll be happening down at Rogers center this weekend are good and important and even if you have a a healthy skepticism for corporate philanthropy the inclusion of those groups and the voices that you'll have the opportunity to see and hear are still important and then there's also the anthony bass of it all we're not going to do a referendum on that through throughout the show really i might make fun of pride churros a couple times uh but there is also a a toronto blue jays team that is rolling right now uh, and we'll play the minnesota twins this weekend i do encourage you to engage with all of the pride activities taking place at Roger center to continue to, to read and learn on your own. And you know, the type of resources that the blue Jays say they're, they're sharing with and empowering Anthony Bass with to seek those out yourself. If it's not something that you're, you're familiar with or uh, know exactly, you know, why this is a, an issue and what, why this is such an important weekend before the bass of it all, why this is such an important weekend uh, to the LGBTQ plus community in Toronto, many of whom are Jays fans and all of whom should feel welcome uh, around Toronto Blue Jays games. Those Toronto Blue Jays games, we'll see the Minnesota Twins in town with a very different look than when we last saw them. It was only like two weeks ago. They have gotten a number of players back healthy. You think, hey, maybe the Minnesota Twins are, are moving in the right direction. Maybe this will be a, a tougher series. No, uh, because as things go in the NL Central, every good comes with two bads. And while they've gotten a number of players back healthy. They've also lost a handful more so much so that they've fallen below 500. And now the entire American league central is under 500. When you contrast that to the Toronto blue Jays, who are again, 10 and three in their last 13 games and have made up one game in the division during that stretch. It's quite the contrast. We're going to talk to Brandon Warren of Access Twins and Locked On Twins a little later in the show to tee up the twin side of this series. We're going to talk to Madison Shipman, who is coming over to join some of our Blue Jays broadcast uh, 
after the conclusion of, of the women's softball season, uh, Oklahoma pulling off the three-peat yesterday. Madison Shipman has been a huge part of ESPN's coverage uh, of the ESPN Women's College World Series. She's going to join us on this show. She's going to join us on Blue Jays Central on Sports at Television all weekend, and she'll be in the mix with us on TV and radio moving forward. Uh, we're also going to take your text at 590-590. We'll, we're going to use kind of the last... 20 or 30 minutes of the show as a bit of a mailbag segment because there have been a lot of good questions and comments this week around the Manoa stuff, around the pitching depth, around, you know, bigger picture, this organization's inability to date to have major league ready depth, especially on the arms side, ready to go. Uh, Riley, I'm talking to you. I am going to finally answer that, that long, thoughtful question you had. Uh, we'll tee up the mailbag segment with that. So you can send your text into 590-590 or, or tweet them at me. Uh, right now, though, we're joined by Kayla McGrath, of the athletic Caitlin, uh, the Toronto blue Jays are 10 and three in two weeks since they had a players only meeting. Why did we never think to have a writers only meeting when we were at the athletic together? I know, right. Our stories would have just, um, sold so many more stuff, <laughs> you know, the metrics would have been off the charts. Uh, what were we thinking? Yeah. The comments sections would have been having a more normal one than they are on your article today. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I have to, I'm going to play the Eric Green card here a little bit, and I'm going to be needlessly negative about a, a positive. So the Jays win yesterday that locks in a 3-1 series victory against the Astros, and it locks in a 4-3 season series victory against the Astros. So the Jays own the tiebreaker against the Astros now. What do you think the chances are that that actually backfires and it ends up costing the Blue Jays a potential matchup with the AL Central winner, and instead they have to face a, a difficult American League wildcard team instead? <laughs> Oh, I never even, it never even occurred to me that that could happen. Oh, it's happening. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, well, you know, the brighter side would be like, what if the Blue Jays had been in that third wild card spot and just squeaked in and Houston was there as well and the Blue Jays get into the playoffs and uh, Houston does not, which is kind of like somewhat of a reversal of um, 2021 when, you know, the Blue Jays, we're one game back, but um, it was so close. Hmm. And so this would be like, I don't know, it coming full circle. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, hmm. <laughs> I know you're just asking that to be devil's advocate. I, don't, I feel like if you were to ask the team or Schneider, it would be like, you're never going to not want the win. You're never going to yes. want, not want the series win. Um, you're never going to not want the season series win. I don't think, I think fans play that matchup game a lot more than teams actually do. I think the thinking with the Blue Jays team, and I think they would say this is like, they think they can go in and beat any club. Um, and whether the, you know, the easier matchup would be the central, which, you know, it probably would be um, given the state of that division. But uh, I think the Blue Jays sort of line on that would be like, we know we can beat anybody and we'll take the tougher matchup if that's what it is. That's the only way they can handle it, Caitlin. Uh, it's the only way to do it, even if I, I'm going to be a little bit of a, of a dingus about it. Um, so in this 10-3 and three stretch, you talk about being able to beat anyone. Obviously, you can't beat the AL East teams when they're not when you're not playing them. Uh, you do look around, though, and you see some AL East teams weakening a little bit. Um, you take three or four against the Astros, who you're right behind. And while that 10-3 and three stretch only gained you a game in the division 
over the last two weeks. It did bump you up two and a half in the wild card. And maybe most importantly, you jumped a bunch of teams in the wild. The Angels are behind you. Red Sox, Mariners, all of those teams are, are not a team you would have to jump now. Um, do you do you sense that obviously it's still a little too early to be looking at the standings every day? Um, but the fact that this has put the Jays in a more comfortable and competitive position, um, can you can you feel that element of it right now? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the the way that May went, um, I think that it was kind of imperative that the team got off to this strong start in June just to not continue to dig that hole. Um, you know, they're 7-1 and one to begin the month. Uh, they've got a pretty good opportunity to improve that record with a, a struggling Twins team coming to the Rogers Center, um, you know, a Twins team that really has not been scoring runs. Um, which, you know, the Blue Jays haven't been scoring at a high clip either, but they've been scoring enough, um, and their pitching has been really, really good. So that probably makes you feel good about playing a team that's kind of scuffling offensively right now. But, you know, I think that, that while they haven't made up much ground on the Rays, they've made up a little bit of ground on the Yankees, I think. They're only a game back of the Yankees now. Um, and I think Baltimore, they're about three-ish games back. So you kind of look ahead to that series next week in Baltimore and you think, well, you know, you can gain some ground on them directly in that. And so I think it's sort of like, sounds cliche, but it always is this sort of one game at a time, one step at a time, you know, you, it's going to take a while to chase down the Rays If it's even possible at all, it's going to take somewhat of a significant collapse from their part, or, you know, just the Rays having a pretty bad month um, to even make it realistic even though there is still a lot of season left. But, you know, the wild card is their most direct path. So right now, focus on that. And, you know, they've done a good job to sort of, like you said, make up some ground, uh, leapfrog some teams, and, and really just be on the cusp of that situation right now. And you mentioned earlier in, you know, I was a half serious question and your your response was, well, yeah, they probably feel like and would tell you they can beat anyone right now. Um, you look at this 10 and three stretch and yeah, the twins have dipped below 500 now, as have the Mets, but those teams were in better shape when you face them. Uh, the Brewers are pretty good and you took care of them. And then the Astros are the Astros. Um, when you look at that, this 10 and three stretch, it hasn't come against the L East, but the competition hasn't been that bad. And I think specifically about the Manoa element Caitlin where your presumed ace has been struggling and you've had rough outings where your bullpen had to cover eight and two-thirds innings and there was all this alarm and now your presumed ace and a guy everyone in that room likes a lot is down in the Florida Complex League the fact that they've been able to have team level success during this stretch of schedule and, and through what Alec Manoa has been dealing with how much of a, of a confidence builder do you think that can be for this group? I think it's huge. I mean, I kind of wrote about that, um, you know, a little bit this week. And it, it would have been um, kind of, I guess, understandable if the team did have a dip in performance, spiral a little bit after seeing, as you said, someone so important to the core of this team, um, you know, struggle so um, so much in in a game and then subsequently get demoted to uh, you know the lowest levels of the minors and, and really signal kind of a complete reset that he needs to do um, and so I think it would have been completely understandable if the team had 
you know, come up looking flat in the rest of the Astros series. You know, the the lucky thing, the good thing for the Blue Jays is they had definitely the two right people, um, well, the three right people, I should say, um, pitching behind Manoa. You know, Gosman and Bassett especially have been so steadying. Brios is right there in that conversation as well. Um, you know, he looks as confident as ever um, with the Blue Jays. And so, you know, you can't say enough, I think, about the Blue Jays starting pitching, not just the way that they've actually pitched and been able to dominate against other teams, but just how sort of calm and um, steady they've been. Uh, It's not even been, you know, a thought. It's like after that, you, you talk about, you know, the bullpen needing to cover, you know, 26 outs or whatever it was on Monday. And it was like, completely reset the next day because of the way that Gosman pitched and then reset even more the next day because of the way that Bassett pitched. So, you know, and even Brios went sick. So the bullpen could have been in rough shape this week. It's actually in great shape this week now, other than maybe Jordan Romano being down because he pitched two games in a row. Yeah. And and I want to touch on Romano in in a minute here, but you mentioned, you know, Jose Brios being a part of that as well. And we we've come to expect it from Gosman and Bassett has always been a guy that one of those guys of like, Oh, even if you don't have it that day, you, you can give you some length. Brios obviously wasn't that last year. Now this year you look and he's gone 11 consecutive games with five plus innings. I I know you mentioned in your, in your story off of last night that he's now had seven quality starts on the year and his ERA is down to 361. We can look at something like, you know, if you don't like quality starts, we can look at baseball references game score and we can say that six starts in a row. Now he's had an above average, uh, starting outing and nine of the last 10, um, the Jose Barrios element of it, being able to add him into the Gosman and Bassett group with that level of reliability. Um, I know that Barrios has talked pretty openly about getting back to that kind of guy. And certainly it was, you know, it, it felt like he was last year's Manoa where every single Jays talk plus was about what's wrong with Barrios and, and how to get him back. Um, but adding a, a third name into there, not just for bullpen preservation but um for how this team feels day to day how big is the brios component i think it's huge and i think it goes um you know you can make it even bigger picture than that but you know this is a guy that they made a significant investment in too like they signed him to a long-term extension gave him 131 million dollars or whatever it was you know seven years he's in the very beginning basically of, of that extension now and so it was not just like you you need him to help you win games, but it's like this is a guy that you've kind of um, slotted in to be a huge part of your team, a huge part of this window of contention for, you know, a long time to come. And the reason that you invested in him was because of the track record and the durability and the fact that, you know, he's a guy that is quite known for going out every five days. He's never been on the I.L., um, he's pretty consistently goes and pitches six innings. You kind of know what you're going to get with him. And so last year was just a complete outlier. And I think that we're now um, far enough into the season that I'm completely comfortable calling last season an outlier. I, I, I don't get any sense that that guy is coming back. I feel like that guy is, um, you know, long gone. Whatever was going on with him um, has been fixed. Um, and he seems to just be riding that confidence. And even yesterday, like, didn't have his great his greatest swing and miss stuff. Um, you know, only two strikeouts, but he was still able to induce a lot of weak contact, got a lot of, um, you know, swings 
from the Astros, who are an aggressively swinging team, um, got a lot of ground balls and still got the job done. So to me, that is also another good sign where it's like, you know, maybe he doesn't always have that slur working as best as he can. You know, the way that we've seen some outings where, you know, guys can't even touch that breaking ball of his. But it looks like he's in that place where he can do it different ways um, and he can be successful even if he doesn't have his best stuff. To me, that's almost the most reassuring thing that happened yesterday. Yeah, I would say that's that's right up there. And then for me, the, and this is semi-related, I look to that second inning where he gives up the Bregman home run and then he loads the bases with nobody out. And last year, that was a, oh my goodness, this is, you know, this is over. This is going to be a seven-run inning. This is going to be a slog. And he gets out of it pretty uh, drama-free from there with just the two runs allowed. So that's, that's a huge sign for me as well. So Caitlin, God Osmond, Bassett, Barrios, at this point in time, are all top 15 in baseball in innings pitched. Uh, you mentioned the impact that that has on the bullpen, especially coming off of a Manoa day uh, like the one that he had Monday, freshens up your bullpen. Um, the effect that that has on John Schneider as a bullpen manager um, obviously makes his job a, a little simpler, uh, having the guys available to him that he wants when he wants them. What have you made a, of John Schneider's ability to manage through when, when he only needs, say, two bullpen arms versus when he has to turn to, to four or five uh, on those shorter start days? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of those things where, like, if if the game um, plays out the way that the team mapped it out, like, of course, the manager's always going to look about a lot better. I mean, yes, the pitcher has to go out there and execute, but if you know you're only covering, like, the seventh inning from – or the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, you kind of have your perfect roadmap for that. They have the certain guys they are slotted in. You know, we know Eric Swanson is usually getting the eighth inning um, in a sort of leverage game, sets up for Jordan Romano in the ninth. Um, you know, the seventh inning sometimes can be a question, but the team still clearly has a lot of confidence in, in Garcia. And to his credit, he got out of it, you know, last night, um, got out of a, a jam after he put two guys on, got a little help with some bad base running mm. as well from the Astros, but Blue Jays will take it. They've been on the other side of that enough times. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I do think that what we've been seeing lately is just kind of the perfect bullpen um, plans um, being put, put out there. And that does make man the manager look a lot better. But I, I think actually, like the bullpen has been really great. I mean, the starting pitching has been so good, and that's what makes the bullpen great because they're just you know they're not out there as much. There's not there's not as much opportunity for them to um, you know make mistakes out there if they're only getting six outs or nine outs or whatever. But I think overall, like. I don't look to many guys in the bullpen right now where I'm I'm not feeling pretty good, especially the guys that are in that sort of like high leverage situation or high leverage role, I should say. So anywhere from like you know Pearson to Richards to Swanson to um, you know even Garcia to some extent to Romano, you kind of feel good about any of those guys going out there right now, and so it makes. John Schneider's life easy if there's a lot of guys that he feels like he can trust right now. For sure. And I, I have uh, maybe a little bit more nervousness right now with Garcia than, than you have, but obviously mm -hmm. they're still going to give him uh, those opportunities. With Romano specifically, uh, and I'm only bringing this up not, not to, you know, straw man or invent a guy or something like that, but I have gotten a couple questions in the text line recently, and you can send those to 590-590 if you have them, um, about Romano. I don't know. It seems like people don't 
a pre don't think he's been as sharp this year, at least from some of the texts and tweets. Now he has a 277 ERA, which is about a half run higher than it was the last two years, but he's also striking out more batters, walking fewer batters, missing more bats from a swing and miss perspective. You fire up his stack cast page and it's all, you know, bright, bright red. It's all it's red in the right spots and blue in the right spots. It's all the right colors. Um, Romano, the job Romano's done as a closer this year, Caitlin, where, where is your confidence level in him? You know, may, uh, maybe not today because he just pitched the last two days, but in a vacuum, a, a generic game, one run lead Romano coming in um, your confidence level in Romano at, at the level he's at right now. Yeah, I think he's been fine. I mean, I think that like the closer is always under more scrutiny and it seems like he can have what 17 saves now, yeah. but people seem to remember like the two blown saves even more of <laughs> which, you know, I understand. I think sometimes with Romano, he's not completely shut down all the time. But, I mean, some what closer is all the time, right? Like, I think that that just comes with the territory. The last three outs are tough to get to. I think we what we should give Romano credit for was how consistently he's been a closer. Think about it. Like, what, since basically 2021, this has been your guy? Um, that's pretty remarkable. There's a lot of teams out there that have had to try multiple guys at the closer position. It's not a foregone conclusion that from year to year to year, your closer is going to be your closer. It's actually, um, you know, a very difficult role. Um, just from the fact that those three outs are tough to get. It's a lot of, um, you know, mental toll that it takes, um, you know, Jordan in particular, um, I know really cares about being Canadian as well. And so those home saves are very important to him always has kind of family and friends. there watching him. So I, I think that he doesn't almost get enough credit for just the overall consistency that he has been dominant in that role. I mean, I, and the numbers have been good this year. I don't know if it's just, um, you know, if he gives up a lead off, hard hit ball, people get very nervous, but I mean, more often than not, he's getting the job done. I think he locks down, um, so yeah, I, I've kind of seen the same comments as you as people sort of feel a little bit more nervous for, um, when, you know, Romano's out there and I can't say I really understand why other than maybe it's because there's been a lot of one run saves lately. Um, those always feel a little bit more tense. You really have no margin for error, but I think he's been, you know, as good as I've seen him, you know, the slider has been a really good pitch for him. Maybe the fastball command can be a little bit better, a little bit sharper. Sometimes that's a bit of a signal for whether he's at his sharpest or whether it's going to be a bit of a grind. Um, you can always kind of tell where the fastball is locating. But, you know, look at yesterday, he gets a, a swing on a high fastball, and that's kind of when you know he's, he's really kind of feeling it. And a little context, a little stack context for anyone who who maybe isn't convinced by that. And you're right, Jordan Romano, the consistency in the closer role is fairly rare. Since the start of the 2021 season, uh, he is fourth in the league with 76 saves. There have been 35 pitchers who have at least 25 saves since then. He's also fourth in the percentage at which he converts them. So uh, those blown saves, yeah, maybe they stand out in your memory, certainly. And I know even a game like uh, like Tuesday or 
what was it? A game like Wednesday where there's the loud double and then a loud out that Kiermaier comes up with. Uh, that's part of it. Fourth in saves over the last three seasons. Fourth in save percentage among guys who close regularly over that stretch. He's uh, he's in pretty good shape. Um, Caitlin, another guy that, that we should probably touch on from yesterday because he's had a, another big moment here. Uh, Alejandro Kirk, not only the numbers turning in the right direction overall of late, not in a dramatic way, but in, in a way that we can appreciate. And then he has two game winning hits over over the last little while and then has a game tying hit last night yes he gets thrown out on the uh on the bases on that one which could have been an insurance run um but how how big has Alejandro Kirk been finding his form uh, for this team particularly during a stretch where Danny Jansen's been down yeah and I think the interesting thing is that um you know the one maybe silver lining to Danny Jansen going down and you know as an aside uh he'll be starting a rehab assignment um this weekend with buffalo so he should be back relatively soon but um you know the the one silver lining to him going on the il is that kirk has gotten a lot more regular playing time and i think every player will tell you the more at bats the more consistent at bats you can get generally that's going to help um with your performance you're going to see a lot more pitches you're going to get a better feel for uh the zone a better feel for your swing um so it's probably no coincidence in fact i don't think it is a coincidence at all because alejandro kirk has said it that the fact that he's been getting more at bats has actually been the thing that's helped unlock his swing the most um getting in there every day you know you know it, it's a long time ago now but we had to remember it late start to spring for him um with the birth of his first child and so he he missed a lot of time in spring he was kind of behind from the get-go so not only was he you know not in there every day was already kind of feeling behind so the slow start was not um totally unpredictable i think but uh now that he's been in there looks a lot better been working on the swing i know he's always working on getting the ball up in the air which obviously he did yesterday um and you know it's uh, unfortunate i guess that bounced out the blue jays could have got um, you know, another run sooner didn't matter because belt drove him in anyway. But, um, I think that, yeah, like the, the thing that, um, you know, I think I've been most impressed with Kirk is that he's been really handling the everyday role too, really well mm-hmm. and, um, continues to catch. Well, obviously he made the great play, uh, yesterday too, um, with, uh, throwing out the base runner um, with the, the back pick at first and then throwing to second, catching um, the Astros off guard there. So he's looked really good in all facets of the game. Yeah, and you mentioned the workload there, and he's played – in 16 games over the last 20 days, only JT Real Muto and Tyler Stevenson uh, have played more during that stretch among catchers. You mentioned uh, Danny Jansen headed for a rehab assignment with AAA Buffalo. The hope is he can rejoin the team Tuesday in Baltimore. Um, last one for you, Caitlin. I, I don't. I, I assume you have a, a vote at the end of season awards, right? Uh, I uh, am eligible to have a vote. Okay. I don't know if I will or what what it will be for. Gotcha. I, I I understand. Every sport does it a little differently, so I'm not a thousand percent clear. Um, Brandon Belt is lobbying pretty hard for MVP. Uh, <laughs> how how much more work does he have to do? Because again, a go ahead hit uh, yesterday. Obviously, he's been very good lately. And to hear him tell Hazel May, this is a Brandon Belt led MVP chant. Yeah, I know. He well, he's been the MVP certainly of the Blue Jays over the last little while um you know this is exactly what the blue jays brought him in for not just the hits and the offense the steady approach but i think just the guy the personality everyone you can't mention the name brandon belt and a guy just doesn't break out in a smile like Mm. he obviously is just 
somebody that brings a great energy. Um, I know he's got like a dry, witty sense of humor. I've seen it a few times. Um, and he's just got a great way about him. He's got a calming presence. Even when, even when the Blue Jays weren't playing so well, he was kind of the same guy. And um, the Blue Jays are pretty good. At, they have a few guys that are pretty good about that, um, that sort of lead the way in terms of making sure the clubhouse is always feeling good, even if maybe um, things on the field aren't going so well. But uh, Belt definitely kind of brings that very calming, steadying presence from a veteran. And um, now he's got the performance to back it up. So I don't know if I will get MVP vote, but certainly yeah. I'll have to. Uh, look long and hard at the uh, campaign that Brandon Belt is putting up right now. From baby giraffe to uh, the captain to MVP, Brandon Belt, no no shortage of uh, of fun gimmicks. Kayla McGrath, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning. You have a nice weekend. Yep, thank you. Kayla McGrath of The Athletic. Check out all her great work uh, there, including, of course, stories from, from the games this week, Alec Manoa being sent down to the Florida Complex League, the success the Jays have had at the team level. Uh, I thought she did a great job in addition to to Ben Nicholson-Smith and, and Gregor Chisholm and, and Keegan Matheson uh, of contextualizing the, the Bass and Atkins stuff uh, from yesterday ahead of Pride Weekend as well. Um, we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk to Brandon Warren of Access Twins and Locked on Twins to help us set up uh, a series, by the way, that's going to have Yusei Kikuchi against Sonny Gray tonight, Kevin Gosman against Louis Varland on Sunday, and Joe Ryan against the big old TBD on Saturday. But we're pretty sure that's going to be uh, Bowden Francis as, as at least the, if not the starter, then, then the bulk follower or something like that. Uh, the Twins are in a bad way right now. A bunch of key injuries have dipped below 500. Uh, also, we'll we'll get to uh, some of your texts in, in the back half of the show as well, so you can keep those coming to 590-590. Brandon Warren joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is, of course, the sound of Prince on guitar. Got to fire up a little Prince when you're playing against Minnesota, even if it's here in Toronto. Uh, Jay's start a three-game series tonight against the Minnesota Twins, 7 o'clock down at Rogers Center. Yusei Kikuchi against Sonny Gray. 3 o'clock tomorrow, TBA, probably Bowden Francis against Joe Ryan. And then the Sunday series finale, 1.30, Kevin Gosman, Louis Varland. Uh, joining us now to help set up the Twins side of things, fresh off a podcast that locked on Twins with A.J. Pierzynski, former TNA Impact wrestler A.J. Pierzynski, in addition to Major League Baseball player. Uh, it's Brandon Warren. Brandon, how are you, man? Good morning, my friend. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in Minnesota, and I hope the same for you all in the day white north. Yeah, it's it's gonna. I mean, the air is clearing out a, a little bit. It's not this like thick, pale gray anymore. We do not, uh, unlike there though, Brandon. We do not have uh, pigs turned over on the highway, running all over the place. What the hell is going on there? Yeah, so an overturned livestock truck on one of our main highways, and the pigs running around, but not feral pigs. To, to do a callback to a Twitter bit. But, um, yeah, domesticated domesticated pigs, I don't know what you'd call them. They were about to be bacon and ham, but uh, 
I guess they got a jump start on that by hitting the highway. That's a, that's a tough scene. That's a, that's a tough look. Also a tough yeah. scene for your Minnesota Twins of late. They have dipped below 500, so we now have the uh, the terror of, of an entire division in baseball more than a third of the way into the season, like 65, 70 games into a season where an entire division is under 500. Um, at what point do we just abolish the American League Central, Brandon? Honestly, I think we're getting to that point here pretty quick because it's been ugly. The Twins somehow are still atop this division, but they've been playing just horribly of late. And I think we got to hope that things turn around soon. Sorry if it's going to be at the expense of the Jays, <laughs> but it's just, it doesn't make any sense because it's a, it's a talented team. You look at this team and they've got guys everywhere where you're like, yeah, that guy can play. That guy can pitch. The pitching has been great. And yet at the same time, they are, they're a mess right now. They can't score any runs. They make bad plays just at the wrong time. And it's, it's really ugly. Yeah, well, I, the one nice thing for them is that after this series with the Blue Jays, they do have a nice uh, 10-game homestand that includes a couple against the Tigers. I personally think they can wait until that homestand to start turning things around. Um, one thing that would obviously help is, is uh, even a little bit of help on the, the health side. So, you know, you look at this lineup, and there are going to be some names we didn't see the last time these two teams played just a couple weeks ago. Jorge Polanco's back. Royce Lewis is back. Max Kepler's back. Uh, that's all nice. But Byron Buxton and Joey Gallo are now on the IL instead. Um, this team, I, I know we don't want to risk like using the overusing the injury excuse because every team's going to face them and things like that. It really does feel like disproportionately, though, this Twins team hasn't been able to stay healthy. Not only that, but Jorge Polanco was back only to leave the last game against the Rays early after straining a hamstring. So. Who knows if he's headed back to the IL. And that's the other thing. They have the depth to withstand these injuries. You go get a guy like Edouard Julien, who, I mean, he's probably familiar to some Canadians. Of course. Canada there. Yeah. Uh, it's not like they don't have players who can't come up and fix these, uh, these issues. They just they haven't done it. And it's, it's just supremely frustrating to see them. Um, you know, last year when they had to fill these spaces, they were going to guys like Tim Beckham, which – People like you or me have heard of, you know, he's the first overall pick a few years ago, and Jermaine Palacios. Now they're going to guys like Cal Farmer and Donovan Solano, and it's it's just not working. And, yeah, health-wise, when it's the big guys like Carlos Correa struggling, Byron Buxton struggling, and then not staying healthy, Joey Gallo not staying healthy, again, it's a team full of names that you don't have to be a prospect wizard to know are pretty good players, and they just can't get out of their own way. So with respect to Byron Buxton, I'm curious. So he's on the, the IL right now uh, with a rib contusion. And I know you can't like getting hit in the ribs with a pitch is not an injury prone thing. You could throw an injury prone thing at, at Byron Buxton for some of the soft tissue injuries. Um, you know, the, the repeated inability to play more than like 90 games of the season. Uh, you get hit in the ribs. That's not really your fault. Um, how much does that impact this lineup though? Obviously Joey Gallo was hitting really well on and off at the top of this lineup, but you know, you look at the way this group looks without Buxton in there. What is the, the ripple effect of him not being in there as the DH every day in terms of how this team creates offense? Honestly, it's, it's less than you might think just because of his struggles recently. He started off hot and then cooled off a lot. He's, He's been prone to going into like two for 20 slumps and then just mashing for a game or two. Now, at the same time, too, you can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter because he obviously 
is a factor day in and day out, and it lengthens your lineup and gives you some dynamic um, potential at the top, not only due to his bat, but especially his speed, which, you know, you've seen a lot of in the past. And so it's obviously a, a domino effect in that it's him, it's Gallo, Kepler has been a mess all season long. And it just it, it doesn't make any sense, though, because they, they'll score two runs and give up three, and they'll give up that third or that second run in the most crushing way possible. Griffin Jacks will give up five straight bloop singles or whatever. It's just it's, it's insane the way this has gone. And, um, you know, to get to the point that I'm discussing this after a Byron Buxton question just shows you the lever <laughs> the level of frustration with this team right now because they should be better than they are. And instead, we're revisiting the 1994 AL West where every single team was under 500. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. And certainly we're going to get to the pitching side in a moment here, which has obviously been a huge positive and why, despite all these offensive struggles, this Twins team's still, you know, just below 500. They're, they're the number two pitching staff in baseball by ERA, despite some injuries there too. Uh, but to stay on the hitting side for, for a second. So, I mean, Buxton's hurt, Gallo's hurt, Carlos Correa's been in and out of the lineup um, with, a number of different things, including plantar fasciitis that who knows if that'll ever go away. I look at guys like, and you mentioned Edouard Julianne, and I promise I'm not doing this just to be uh, the Homer because he is Canadian and he had some very big moments against the Toronto blue Jays and with Canada in the world baseball classic, um, a guy like Julianne, a guy like Matt Walner who came up and hit like crazy in the short little opportunity he got. At what point did the twins start exploring some of those 24, 25 year old guys they have ready at AAA just because the vets that they have filling in that the Kepler's, the Michael Taylors right now are just not that high upside. Yeah, I think at some point Kepler, they, Rochelle came out and was like, you know, Kepler's mistake. There was a mistake in Tampa where Michael A. Taylor stole third base and, and the trailing runner Kepler didn't take second. And in the sense of how Rochelle operates, he kind of aired Kepler out. And I think that goes to show like it's put up or, or shut up time with Kepler. He's been here forever. He was a 2009 international free agent signing the July 2 with Jorge Polanco and Miguel Sanel. So incredible July 2 class. Hmm. But at some point, it's just like you're not producing. 2019 is an aberration. They were playing with pink, uh, bouncy balls offensively that year. It's not happening again. you got to give Walner a chance. you you got to give Ju- – Julian's a different situation because he's either second base yeah. or a DH, and they're pretty docked in both of those spots. But I think Julian would be up DHing now if he hadn't been sent down in the last 10 days, you know, with the, the roster rule. But um, I think we're getting to a point where, you know, they need help at the top of the order. Julian's got a really good eye. They need help power-wise. And Walner is basically like a diet version of Joey Gallo, hmm. not quite as, um, as uh, athletic. But it gives you a lot of the same tools. At some point, it's just got to be pushing different buttons because you can't fire the whole team. I don't think they're going to fire the pitching or the hitting coach, excuse me. So it's just a matter of just figuring out what the next buttons to push are. I mean, really Castro led off in the race series. That should tell you where this offense is right now. Yeah, not great. I know he has the wheels to steal home, but not, not what you want in terms of uh, on base profile. And he even just, you know, hitting right. at the top of the order. You mentioned Julian. He's been red hot since he went back down to the minors. Uh, we got to look at Walner in that last series and a bit of a, uh, 
you know, that we Brandon Belt used to get called the baby giraffe the odd time they'd throw him in left field. Uh, Walner had a bit of that in right field too, but a big, big arm there. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see longer looks at guys like that. So again, how then is a team that has struggled this much on the offensive side is 18th at WRC plus has all these injuries. How are they only a game under 500? Well, it's the pitching staff. They're number two in the league in ERA. This despite losing Kenta Maeda and Tyler Molly and Chris Paddock still being out. This is a, a starting rotation that has really stepped up. We're going to see Sonny Gray and Joe Ryan these next two days. We didn't catch those two guys the last time the Blue Jays and, and Twins played. Sonny Gray right now, potentially in the, the Cy Young conversation, if we did a midway ballot, he's got a 215 ERA. The swinging strike rate is up. Um, there were some questions at the time about the Sonny Gray acquisition and if it fit the timeline and things like that. But two years in, that looks like, uh, you know, last year's injury issues aside, the Minnesota Twins have to be incredibly happy with how the Sonny Gray additions turned out. Been pretty apt. And the same thing, too, with Pablo Lopez. It's just a matter of what you need in that moment. But for Sonny Gray, the big thing for him this year, and you mentioned swinging strike rate, but he's also really perfected a front door two-seam fastball to right-handed hitters. That uh, One thing I like to think about is if a pitch is either in the strike zone for a long time and then leaves it or is out of the strike zone for a long time and comes into it as being kind of like your best pitches. And for him, that two-seam front door, it just catches the edge of that corner. And then besides that, you know, he's had a curveball that he's really been kind of known for in the past, good tight break on it this season. Uh, he's just been kind of doing everything right. And that 2.15 ERA, I think you said, that's actually on the upswing a little bit because he had a, a tougher outing last time out. Otherwise, he's been sitting in the ones. And if you know, if Garrett Cole hadn't been so, um, you know, so so nasty in April, I think we'd be talking a lot more about Sonny Gray. But I think he's right in the thick of it. And hopefully, too, this team starts playing better because you know I think voters have kind of wised up to the fact that it doesn't matter if your team makes the playoffs as much. But at the same time, too, like. He needs to be on a better team because he's providing better value to a team that should be better, if that makes sense, kind of talking myself into circles here. It does. um, No, it does. And the other the other thing that would go against his favor, maybe, is that he might not be the best pitcher on his own team because Joe Ryan's been so ridiculous as well. You know, the ERA a little higher at 276, but Joe Ryan does not walk anyone. He's got that nasty splitter. That's like Kevin Gosman cosplay, cosplay, if you will. And. If he, because of the splitter and the way those things play off of each other. And I, I was talking about this on, on my show the other day after a Gosman start, because someone asked, why don't guys just like lay off the splitter knowing anything low is the splitter? Well, Joe Ryan's fastball has the number two run value of any pitch in baseball so far this year, in large part because of how it plays off the splitter. Um, you see some similarities in Joe Ryan's profile to Kevin Gosman and what's made him so effective this year. Yeah, basically just less velocity. I mean, Gaussman, I I haven't watched that close to the season, but I think he can probably still run it up there a little better than Ryan. But the thing, too, with a split fastball profile is if you work up with the fastball and they expect a split, or you work down with the fastball and they expect a split, there's a lot of deception there. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily considered tunneling, but it's it's just a good mix and match. And I think two credits should go to Christian Vasquez. He's been an absolute zero on offense, but you can't understate what a catcher means to a team. And I think Russell Martin was kind of that way for the Blue Jays. Um, you know, I wanted the Twins to sign Martin. I wanted them to sign Yasmani Grandal. 
They ended up getting Jeffers in the draft, who's been very, very good at that, and Vasquez as well. But in addition, yeah, like you mentioned, the split for Joe Ryan, basically a new pitch for him. It's, it's not often a guy comes out of the chute trying something new and it works like this. And you look at it and you're like, you know, he's not blowing anybody away. But if you don't put guys on base and you work ahead, uh, that goes a long way to being successful in this league. It does, and I'm excited to get a look at that Saturday, and we'll see who the, the Jays counter with. And then Sunday, we've got, you know, you'll get Gosman Sunday coming off Joe Ryan Saturday, so everyone listening can kind of make your own uh, opinions and comparisons to how those two operate, if not stuff-wise, then, then approach-wise. And then Sunday, we'll see Louis Varland, who, um, you know, wasn't bad against the Blue Jays last time. He gave up three over, over six innings um, and had mostly been solid. The Rays kind of tattooed him the other day, though, uh, are we seeing a, a bit of, you know, some teams are, are starting to figure Varland out a little bit, or is that just the Rays being the Rays and the Jays caught him on, on a pretty good day too? I think he lives and dies by the homer. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he gave up a couple homers that day against the Jays. I, I can't remember for sure, but if he, he did he yeah. people in the yard, he's good. He beat Houston before that. And Houston's not Houston with all caps, like we've remembered them in recent seasons, but they're still a good ball club. I mean, I don't think Jose Abreu is going to have a 50-weighted runs created plus all season long. So, with Louis, yeah, if he keeps it in the yard, he's solid. He's a he's a player development victory for them. They drafted him out of a small B2 school about 10 miles from Target Field. And actually, I almost played town ball with his brother, Gus, who actually debuted in the big leagues this year with Milwaukee. I missed him by a year. But, um, yeah, my little small-town baseball story there you here. Go. But Louis, yeah, Louis' velo has spiked. He's got good secondary stuff. He's just basically like uh, uh, his ceiling is like a guy you would really love to have be your number four or five starter. And those guys make plenty of money in today's game if they can hang around for six plus years and hit free agency. So I'm enthused about it. Seems like he's a good kid, uh, but but real good stuff, good head on his shoulders. And, you know, we'll see what happens. He's, he's kind of in that mix where if it slows down, maybe Kenta takes his spot back because he's getting closer to healthy. He's starting on Saturday at St. Paul. But at the same time, he and Bailey Ober, neither of which made the roster coming out of spring training, have been as good as you can expect guys like that to be. Ober's been even better, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, he's he's fun to watch and that kind of big, lanky uh, delivery. Brandon, um, it just r- refresh me because you mentioned you, you almost crossed paths with Gus Farland. Do you play, you play D2 ball? No, I played, uh, they, they call it town ball here colloquially. I played D3 for a year. But okay. uh, town ball is basically like a, Grown men, uh, amateur ball, you know, so it's, it's good baseball. Like I, I played against the guy the Twins had released a couple weeks before, and Mark Hamburger played in that league before he tried out for the Twins, and then uh, they traded him for Eddie Gordado. There's, there's some talent out there, but uh, I was probably one of the worst players in the league. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we have something similar here. It's called the Intercounty Baseball League, and if you remember Dalton Pompey yeah. from, from the Toronto Blue Jays, yeah. he was playing in that league last year. He actually came on with us. Uh, his Guelph team uh, made it to the championship, and he was talking with us uh, about that. So uh, similar thing there, and you just missed Gus mm-hmm. Varlin Dam. So we'll, we'll see Louis Varlin uh, on the weekend. In, in terms of what the next couple of months look like for the Twins, just with the AL Central being as it is, I know because they've struggled the lead over Cleveland has shrunk to a game and a half and the White Sox and Tigers technically aren't that far behind but when you look at the where the twins are big picture um you know the the potential to get back to health the the level of, of veterans that they have on this team where is your confidence level that the twins are able to hang on and wrap up the AL Central I mean it's waning in the sense that they've just been so bad lately 
But I believe in the talent of this team. I just need to see them put it together. They they can roll four deep in the bullpen. Not many teams can do that. And that's without counting Brock Stewart, former Blue Jay Brock Stewart, Jose De Leon, who's been good, Paul Sands, who's pretty good, Giovanni Moran, who's been pretty good. Like, they've got all the pieces. They just can't seem to put it together. It's like a, a big Lego set or something. I, I don't understand. But offensively, if they start hitting even, like, if they could put up 100 weighted runs created plus, a league average offense for an entire month, they'd be leading by six games at the end of that month. I'm, I'm No question in my mind. I look at these other teams, and I just don't see it. And maybe that's my twins colored glasses stepping into play. But honestly, I, I just I don't think these other teams have the talent to keep up. And if the Twins let the White Sox back into this race with their kind of good vibes of Liam Hendricks, oh, that's that's scary because those things also do uplift the team as they should. Yeah, those things matter. And the Hendricks thing is uh, is has been obviously uh, a lot of fun, despite Josh Donaldson trying to ruin it by hitting a home run in that spot uh, the other day. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I think, like you said, the Twins have a lot of talent here. Obviously, Buxton and, and Gallo and, and Kenta Maeda getting back healthy would be big things. But um, that division is just unspeakably bad. So they are welcome to get things back on track Tuesday when they start a 10-game homestand and no sooner than Perfect. that. Uh, Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Enjoy this series this weekend. Anytime, my man. Be, be, care- be careful of the pigs when you're driving around out there. Uh, Brandon Morn, uh, fresh off of uh, a livestock truck being tipped over in Minnesota, and there are loose pigs everywhere. And I'm not joking. That's not, a, that's not some inside joke or reference or euphemism. That is a thing that happened in the city of Minneapolis uh, this morning. You can check out more of Brandon's work uh, at Access Twins and Locked on Twins. Good podcast the other day on Locked on Twins featuring AJ Pierzynski, uh, who, yes, as I referenced before, did have a, a little bit of a spin in pro wrestling. So did I Did I become more pro AJ Pierzynski post-career than, than I was when he was actually in baseball and he was not the uh, the most likable of guys? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you do. You dabble in the pro wrestling a little bit and I'll, uh, I'll find my way to having an appreciation for you. I, I also have an appreciation for you guys who are texting in questions to 59590. In the back part of this show, we're going to do some mailbag stuff. I'm going to sort through some of those uh, and, and answer some of your questions. So you can keep those coming in to 590-590. We'll get to as many of them as we can. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, I talk to Madison Shipman. Madison's fresh off being a big part of ESPN's broadcast coverage for uh, the Women's College World Series. She's going to be a part of our Blue Jays coverage moving forward, starting with Blue Jays Central this weekend. Um, doing some radio color alongside Ben Wagner. She's going to come on Jay's Talk Plus with us. So we'll get to know Madison a little bit and hear about uh, the Oklahoma three-peat as well as this Jay's Twin Series as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. A little song about Oklahoma. We're going to talk about Oklahoma. Uh, not that we do a, a ton of softball here, but when you three-peat and you win 51 games in a row, deserves some headlines, deserves some chatter. When you have Madison Shipman on the show, you're going to talk some Oklahoma softball. Madison Shipman joins us now, ESPN softball analyst, former shortstop for the Lady Vols. Uh, Madison, welcome to Toronto. Thank you so much. This is my first trip ever up to Canada, so I'm really excited about it. 
and you're here. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about the softball in just a second. But for, for anyone who doesn't know, you're here because you're going to join some of our, our Blue Jays broadcast stuff. You, you've been doing some hits on Blue Jays Central, but you're going to be a part of Blue Jays Central this weekend from down at Rogers Center. Uh, you're going to be in the mix uh, on the radio side for us as well. Um, so welcome in that regard as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really can't wait. This is my first time ever being involved uh, on the MLB side of things, and I cannot wait to get started. So what you're coming off of, you know, doing ESPN's uh, coverage of the Women's College World Series. Actually, let's just let's just get it out of the way. The Oklahoma winning three championships in a row, 51 game winning streak, that level of dominance and, and dynasty. We went through this on the women's basketball side as well with UConn a couple years ago. Um, is that in your estimate, is that good for the sport? Like to have a program that's at this level and, and where everyone's gunning for them for several years. Is that a plus for, for women's softball? You know, I have always enjoy watching the Sooners go out there and compete. And I think when we talk about great teams, we talk about them moving the needle. And in my opinion, the Oklahoma Sooner softball team, they are the needle. So they are the team that everybody's trying to work their way up towards. Um, they, they have built a dynasty. And it's interesting how they're able to create that consistency by getting wins in different ways every single year. I feel like when we look at that team, the previous couple of years, they really dominated with the home run ball. Now this season, they hit the home runs, but the way that they were able to use their entire pitching staff, their nearly flawless defense, their ability to, to use some of the short game, the bunts, the slaps, uh, smacking a double into the gap. I think that's one of the reasons why this team is so incredibly dominant because Truly, it's a balanced lineup top to bottom and just an absolute nightmare for opposing pitchers to have to go up against. So I've, I've really enjoyed watching what Coach Patty Gasso has built over there in Norman, and they're getting a new field next year because of it too. So that's going to be a whole new exciting part of the 2024 season when they open up Love's Field in Norman next year. And then you also get the benefit of you're coming off three titles. You, you've got the headlines. You've got the new field. It probably gets a little easier to recruit and, and keep that rolling. So although I guess you maybe can't offer playing time as readily as some other programs when you're when you're that stacked. Um, so, Madison, you are coming over from, from the softball side to the baseball side. You mentioned it's your first time on the MLB team side, but you have done a little bit of baseball before. You called some Tennessee games. Um, how has that transition been? I know the sports are are very similar, but not exactly the same. Um, what has that been like for you shifting back and forth from a, a softball focus to a baseball focus the last little while? You know, it's interesting because I do feel like me diving into the baseball side of things has helped me kind of uh, understand a, a new perspective of doing softball. And I feel like softball traditionally, when you look back 10 years ago, you pretty much just ran out the same starting pitcher every single game, whether it's a three-game series or, you know, you're playing five games in a weekend. You're really relying on just one starting pitcher to pretty much go the distance in every single ball game. But now you see a lot of softball teams adapting more of a baseball mentality by using starting pitchers, using middle relievers, even using closers because the offenses have gotten so good that you have to throw a bunch of different looks. So I feel like me kind of learning a little bit more on the pitching rotation side has actually helped me call some of my softball games this year because you see a lot of teams adapting to the baseball-style approach to using their entire bullpen to end up getting a series win. And when you look at a team like Oklahoma, who, of course, we just talked about their dominance, they're a team that likes to throw a bunch of different looks uh, from the pitching side. Uh, when they're out there competing. Well, you were a player yourself. You were uh, obviously a shortstop at Tennessee and the hitting side of that. Um, 
when it comes to obviously that element is different, right? Like if you're seeing the same pitcher and and you know who to expect and it's one pitcher for the whole game, how much does that change from the hitters point of view as softball teams kind of modernize how, how they're or not modernize is not the right term, but baseballize how they're using pitchers in different <laughs> roles. What does that shift from the hitters perspective? I think you really have to make adjustments a lot quicker in a ball game. Sometimes if you're facing a starting pitcher, you might feel a little bit of relief if you only have to face them once or twice in the lineup if they've got your number and they make a change to maybe a closing pitcher. But I think really what it comes down to is making those quick adjustments within the ball game. And a lot of times you saw coaches making the pitching changes against certain batters in the order, knowing that they maybe struggled to make those quick adjustments in that quote-unquote leadoff position I'll call it whenever that new pitcher was coming into the ball game. So it really depended on what type of pitcher was coming into the game. Uh, for me personally, if somebody was coming into the game that threw a lot of off-speed pitches, I knew I was going to, uh, I was going to make it a really difficult outing for them because I always love to hit an off-speed pitch. Nice. So I, I guess, you know, the thing I'm most looking forward to about hearing you, obviously on Blue Jay Central, but I know you're also doing uh, some color commentary work alongside Ben Wagner, starting with that Canada Day weekend series uh, against the Red Sox. I'm, I'm very excited to hear you kind of get inside the hitter's head and walk us through, you know, what is a hitter, you know, coming off of this pitch or, or this sequence. Um, how how much, and I know you're, you're kind of just starting out, but like when you talk to um, male players on, on the baseball side, on the major league side, how many, how many parallels do you see, you know, in terms of a, a hitter's psychology with, with what you've gone through and what you think a major league hitter goes through? Like how, how similar are those, are those approaches? You know, it's really interesting because when I started really diving deep um, into the MLB side of things where, uh, back in, you know, January, December, um, I really thought it was going to be drastically different because the sports are very similar but so different in, in very, very many ways. And the, the deeper and deeper I dive into it, the more similar the hitting mindsets I feel like there are when you have, you have batters that go up there that just like to react to pitches. They don't like to go up there and sit specific pitches, but then you have batters that really go up there, up there. Maybe they're hunting a fastball. Maybe they're hunting a breaking ball. And I think that those are the parallels that I can really draw into because I was a player that loved to have a very specific approach and a game plan. When I stepped up to the plate, I wanted to know, what the pitcher was going to throw, what their number one pitch was so that I could go up there and attack that pitch. And I had the opportunity to work with uh, David DeLucci, who played in the major leagues, and he was a guy that liked to go up there and just purely react. He did not want to know what pitch was coming. He did not want to see you know, if, there, if the pitcher was tipping any pitches. He just wanted to trust his hands and react when he got into the box. So I feel like there are a lot of similarities that we can draw from from different types of perspectives when it comes to a hitting approach. And the best thing about baseball and about softball is there's no one right way to do it. You're going to have a different approach for every single batter that's in the lineup. And so I think I love to learn what each batter sees when they step into the box, what they're looking for, what makes them so great when they step up to the plate. So you're making this transition from, and not from softball to baseball, but you're doing both. Uh, and you're deciding what team, you know, you might want to get involved with. And the Jays take three out of four against your hometown Houston Astros. So is that, and then you choose the Jays. Is that, is that how this worked out specifically with you on Blue Jays Central? <laughs> I will say I was born in Houston, lived there for a little while, and then grew up uh, just outside of Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, so then I went out to play in Tennessee. Um, but no, I've honestly, uh, my dad actually, we, we were always Cincinnati Reds fans growing up. Nice. You know, we just always watched the Reds because he grew up in that area. So we really my whole household has been fans of baseball. 
Um, and we always watch, and I was really excited being able to to watch the success that the Blue Jays had even last season. A lot of uh, younger players, of course, with Vladdy and Bo Bichette that are just, just so incredible at their craft. So I was so excited to get this opportunity uh, to be able to get uh, on board with Sportsnet and be able to talk about these guys consistently throughout the season. And I cannot wait to dive into it. And what a time you're, you're joining them for where they're 10 and three in their, in their last 13. And obviously the American league East is what it is, but as you've kind of, you know, as you're diving in here, what do you like about where the Jays are at right now over these last couple of weeks? And understandably, I, I know you've been on uh, women's college world series duties. So it's uh, you know, there's a, there's a, I, I can't imagine you've been able to lock in a thousand percent uh, until recently, but what are you liking from, from the Jays as you kind of catch up here? Well, I really like the, the, the player initiative, I guess, that they took. What was that, about two weeks ago yeah. where they had that player meeting only that, you know, that's, that's only for them to know. And I think that they kind of understood that, hey, this, this season's not going in the direction that we want it to and every single game matters. So to be able to take that initiative, talk amongst themselves, and really since then, I, I feel like they've been getting on a terror. It seemed like for a while there it was a combination of maybe a starting pitcher would have a good outing, but then they weren't getting the bats, and maybe they were making some mistakes defensively. But I feel like throughout this past streak, you've kind of seen them really put it all together. And being able to bounce back, a couple have come from behind wins on this past series against the Astros. I think they're coming through with that timely piece of hitting because I feel like for about a month or so there, the, the hits with the runners in scoring position seem to be a bit of a problem. But when you have somebody like Brandon Belt and his leadership that he brings over this season um, and the way that he's been able to come through recently, Alejandro Kirk, I feel like he's always the guy that puts good barrel on ball when you need him to, when you have those pieces of timely hitting, I often feel like it takes off a bit of pressure from the rest of the lineup to kind of free them up to just go up there and hunt their pitch. And I think you're seeing a product of an entire team, an entire offense really truly sticking to their game plans up there and not trying to force something to happen, not trying to force a home run in a big moment, but just taking the pitch that you're given and driving it out to the grass. So uh, when you look at, so they go 10 and three during this stretch and they only catch up one game on the Tampa Bay Rays in that entire stretch in the division. And it's a little early to standings gaze maybe, but they're, you know, it is notable. They're nine and a half back, even though they're eight games over 500. Um, You know, you, you've been in some tough conferences before. We just talked about Oklahoma's dominance in that room. How do you think just how strong the AL East is like what what impact do you think that that has is that a motivating factor does that kind of shift the focus to oh we're gonna have to be ready for a wild card game what kind of trickle down does that have or or does it not have an effect because you know you have to be so day-to-day in the room you know I think it's combination of both I think because the AL East is just so competitive I know oftentimes as athletes we try to think in a one game at a time mentality or one pitch at a time mentality and I think because the division is just so strong. You have no other choice but to think one game at a time because you're so many games back behind Tampa Bay. You can't control what they do on the field, so you can only control what the Blue Jays do and how they perform when they go out there. So I think because it's so strong, because Tampa Bay has been playing so well this year, it's almost kind of forced the Blue Jays to not look too far down the stretch but really focus on the one game at a time mentality. And that's why I think it's so important for them to kind of get back onto this consistent uh, winning stretch that they've been on rather than that slide that they were on a couple of weeks ago. So all you can do is go out there and try to win every single game that you go out there and compete. 
And so far, it seems like they've shifted back to that mentality. Um, so I, I want to ask you a couple quick hitters here, just on your, your impressions of a couple people and you played shortstop. So of course I'm going to ask you about Boba and, and, you know, <laughs> Boba at the plate. I, I mean, you talk about the psychology of hitting and being fascinated by that element of, of adjusting to pitchers game plans. There's, there's we're out of holes in Boba approach. There's no good way to hit him uh, to pitch him. Rather. He also by my eyes and by some of the, the more advanced metrics, even if you just look at something like errors, he made his fifth error of the season last night. That's not a very high number for this far into the season. Um, What have you made of Bo's growth as a shortstop defensively over the years? Yeah, I think that I've been really impressed with the way that he's been able to play defense this year. And I think bringing on somebody like Don Mattingly into the coaching staff, I think has helped not just Bo defensively, but look at the play that Vladdy made yesterday too. Just the athleticism that you're seeing all the way across the infield. Matt Chapman, of course, has been a staple throughout his career, but I like the aggressiveness that we're seeing from Bo from the shortstop position. I think oftentimes when he was making some of the errors and even the one that he made last night, he was a bit on his heels. And I think he's been able to make more consistent plays because he's more aggressive getting to the baseball. When you let the baseball play you, that's when it can take some funky hops. That's when it maybe ricochets off of your glove. But I think consistently what we've seen from him this year is an aggressive defense mentality, similar to what we see from him at the plate, but on defense. And that's why he's been so solid. Um, out there at shortstop. I mentioned some of the, the defensive analytics there on Bo, and we don't, we don't have to get into the specifics there, but I'm curious, you as someone who played not, not very long ago and now as an analyst, um, when it comes to that type of extra layer of information, is that something you were, you were hungry for as a player, you know, whatever data or, or extra information was available, whether it's, you know, fielding or, or hitting or pitching, pitcher scouting, um, whatever it was, did you find yourself um, inclined to, to look at and ask for that kind of stuff? Yeah, I definitely was a player that wanted to know a good piece of information. Now, granted, back when I was playing, we didn't have as much access uh, immediately to the info that we had, whether it be on pitchers or batters. But what I like to look at while I was in the game, even defensively at shortstop, was the tendencies in somebody's swing. And I always felt like in between pitches, batters are kind of working on what they're trying to avoid or trying to work towards in their game swing. So I could kind of get a sense of if they were going to roll over on a pitch or if they dropped their barrel and they were going to lead to a pop-up or the inside out of the ball, the opposite direction. And what I found was taking that information along with the pitch that was being called uh, for my pitcher kind of gave me a little bit of a level of anticipation to be able to put myself in a position to make plays defensively. So that's always the type of information that I was trying to use when I was playing. And I actually often find now when I'm watching film, I still kind of think back to those tendencies that I was looking for that maybe make somebody good in a situation or give them a leg up defensively to get that extra one step um, to be able to make a play across the diamond. So I was definitely a player that wanted the information if they had it. Um, and now the, the information has grown substantially over the past decade. So I can only imagine what I would have wanted to know nowadays, having so many stats and video available at the tip of your fingers. But uh, definitely was a player that thrived uh, knowing the information that was put out in front of them. Not only just the data and information, but we see Brandon Belt wears the uh, the pitch com. Like you can have one infielder wear the pitch com, and he's darting all over the place after the, you know, obviously you have to be careful not to tip what's coming, uh, but he moves yeah. a, a couple feet, a, a couple uh, a couple spots here and there uh, when he sees that. Um, so 
you know, you're going to be on Blue Jay Central all weekend. We, we have an idea of who you say Kikuchi is at this point. We have an idea of who Kevin Gosman is on Sunday for sure. But on Saturday, we think, and it's not official yet, whether it's uh, whether it's as a starter or as a bulk guy, we don't really know what to expect from Bowden Francis yet. And we can scout the AAA stuff. I went through his his four AAA starts ahead of a Blue Jay Central appearance the other week. And, and you know, the curveball looks cool. He throws it in weird counts and to steal strikes and things like that um for you as an analyst and for you just as a as a baseball fan when a guy gets called up especially someone like this who's you know 27 not really a top prospect or anything like that and is making his debut in a spot like this what are you looking for foremost like, like what would give you signs of encouragement early in Bowden Francis's is start what, what's kind of front of mind for you first time seeing a guy yeah, when I'm looking at a pitcher for the first time, too, I think it's important to stick to what makes them great and what's gotten to them to this point. And I think when you have a curveball, if you try to overthrow it, if you're trying to force getting strikeouts, that's when you're not going to get as much movement on a breaking ball or maybe you're going to flatten out a fastball a little bit too much. So I think and it's, it's easier said than done, right, when you get ha- amped up in those positions when you're getting thrown out there for the start. But I think it's important for him to just stick to what's made him good at this point. He's got a four-seam curveball slider, a little bit of a change-up, too. And so I think trying to locate those pitches on the outside part of the strike zone and making sure that you're not leaving it too much over the heart of the plate, but also not trying to overthrow those pitches. We've just been talking about the defense. I think being able to rely on the defense behind you, too. Um, So that's kind of – I'm looking for a lot more of the composure and maybe not getting frustrated if some things go his way. But I think those are all building blocks that you can look towards to build on throughout the rest of your career, not necessarily just going out there and trying to rack up all the strikeouts, although the strikeouts would be nice. I think every starting pitcher would love to have all those strikeouts. Um, but I think not trying to force the issue and just sticking to uh, the the velocity or the movement pitches that he has for him. Yeah, what's the old Bull Durham quote? Strikeouts are fascist. Uh, ground balls are democratic. You you can just trust your defense uh, a little bit. And you mentioned the changeup, and last one for you here, just because you had kind of mentioned the the hitter. We talked about the hitter's psychology stuff. Um, when it comes to you, you mentioned Bowden Francis's changeup. He really hasn't thrown it a ton this year. Just, just kind of a show me changeup here and there. If you're a hitter and you're getting, you're a Minnesota Twins hitter, you're getting ready to see this kid for the first time. Are you like how much? brain space is that change up taking out? Cause I could see it both ways where it's like, well, he's, he's coming up for the first time. He's going to focus on what he throws. Well, he's not going to try to throw a fourth pitch. He doesn't throw it that much. And then part of me is like, yeah, but okay. If hitters are thinking like that, maybe you can steal getting one over. How, how much, how much prep do you give to the idea of that change up? Or do you just kind of focus in on, on curveball fastball with a guy that, that throws those two pitches so frequently? Yeah, I don't think I would worry about the changeup until he proves that he can throw it consistently for strikes. So if I'm going up there, and my approach is definitely going to be between the four-seam fastball and the curveball. So those are the ones that you're going to see the most consistently. So I'm kind of deciding between those two which one you want to go after. And maybe if he's got a little bit of nerves in that first inning, then you're really zeroing in on the fastball, forcing him to have to bring the ball over the plate. So I think that's why it's uh, going to be good for him early in the ball game to establish that he can throw that curveball consistently for strikes because then that's another speed that these batters are going to have to adjust to. And as you get more comfortable, that's when you can add in a little bit more of the, the repertoire of pitches that he has. But really at the beginning of the game, if I'm going up to bat, I'm choosing between four seam and curveball and sticking with that plan until he shows me something different. 
All right, Madison Shipman making her Blue Jay Central debut down at Rogers Center. Um, I mean, I know you've been on, but your your actual at Rogers Center debut bound. <laughs> Francis gonna gonna do the same. Um, it is your first weekend here. What's on the? Do you have anything on the docket other than just the games? Like your first time to Toronto. Is, is there anything must do, must see for you, or is it all baseball for the weekend? Well, I feel like I need to ask you that question because I honestly have not been able to leave the lobby of my hotel yet uh, because I got in late last night. I did run into a little bit of traffic getting to the hotel, uh, so I didn't have a ton of time to go out and explore. Is there something that I need to do while I'm here? Yeah, I've got all sorts of recommendations. I'm not going to give away the free advertising or anything like that, but but we will have you covered. Uh, we'll, we'll talk down at the park a little bit later, and we'll make sure you're you're all set for the weekend. Uh, Madison Shipman, thank you so much for taking the time out. Really, really looking forward to you on Blue Jay Central this weekend on Color Commentary with Ben Wagner, Canada Day weekend, and, and getting to work with you moving forward. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Madison Shipman, uh, ESPN softball analyst, former Lady Vols shortstop, and now a part of our Blue Jays broadcast team on Blue Jays Central this weekend on Sports at Television, of course. And yeah, you'll see her on the radio side or hear her on the radio side, rather, uh, a little bit more moving forward, starting with that big, big Red Sox series, Canada Day weekend. That's always uh, that series, whatever series it ends up being, uh, always a blast. One small note before we take a break and keep those texts coming to 590-590. The last segment of today, it's a Friday. Uh, you know, we'll start the weekend off kind of getting to uh, your texts in that segment. Um, couple injury updates. Again, Danny Jansen off to AAA for a rehab assignment with Buffalo. The eye is on him potentially returning Tuesday for the start of that Baltimore Orioles series. We also had Addison Barger make his first uh, minor league appearance yesterday uh, as he works his way back from an elbow injury that's cost in the last six weeks of his triple a season he went over two in a game with the florida coast league blue jays uh working as the designated hitter there uh no notable names coming up in those complex league uh teams just yet but we'll keep an eye on those certainly keep an eye out for when the the alec manoas of the world uh pop up there oh jordan luplau by the way also if you're looking ahead to potentially needing outfield depth at some point luplau no longer on the uh the 40 man but he's on a rehab assignment with those fcl uh blue jays along with addison barger um it is Fun. So there's, you know, you can look up all the the minor league box scores day by day, uh, all in one spot. It's always fun uh, when there's a day where multiple guys with the same team have big games. And we talked to um, Doug Fox earlier in the week, a future Blue Jays, a newsletter you should subscribe to to keep up with all the Blue Jays in the system. And we kind of, without intention, just focused on the New Hampshire Fisher Cats because uh, they're so fun right now. They won seven to two yesterday. They're a couple games over 500. That was a game where Leo Jimenez, who we talked talked about had a pair of hits or Elvis Martinez who we talked about had a pair of doubles uh, Damiano Palmagiani who we had talked about uh, a lot as kind of a, a rising name he had three hits uh, he was a home run shy of the cycle and then Chad Dallas one of the rising pitching names we had discussed allowed one earned over six innings so um, there is as much as we have talked about and in this next segment, I know there's already a couple of mailbag questions. We're going to talk about the lack of major league ready depth in the system, specifically on the pitching side. The fact that the double a roster day to day looks pretty loaded and that rotation is solid. Um, maybe gives you some hope that better days are ahead in that regard. Having said that, 
Don't ever, ever, ever look at the Buffalo Bisons box scores. You don't want to see it. Uh, you don't. You just until some of those double A guys called up, get called up. You just do not want to see uh, what the Buffalo Bisons are doing down at AAA, other than than Danny Jansen's rehab. Uh, we're also sending a, a get well soon to Matt Devlin, who's filled in on some Blue Jays uh, games and, and been on the show with us. He uh, has a foot injury that he's coming back from, so uh, he'll be back on on back around the Jays later in the season. Uh, but a get well soon to Matt Devlin. We're gonna take a break. When we come back, final segment is all you guys. It's mailbag time, so send your text to 590-590. Jay's Talk Plus will continue on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Great chat with Madison Shipman there. Uh, Caitlin McGrath, Brandon Warren a little earlier as well. This segment, though, no guess. It's all you guys. It's all about you. Unless you want me to spend 25 minutes breaking down the Denver Nuggets, trading a protected 2029 first-round pick for three other picks from the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, basketball, getting an early start on silly season. And, yes, there have been some questions in the text line over the course of the week about some about trades, some about signings, things like that to, to try to weather the Alec Manoa storm before we get to those texts though. uh, If you missed on blue Jay central the other day, I did a little bit of a breakdown on what you can expect from Bowden Francis. Now this is not a top prospect. Of course he's 27 years old. He was number 17 on fan graphs list of, Prospects within the Blue Jay system entering this year. He wasn't even on MLB Pipeline's top 30. However, there's a reason that he's getting the call over someone else. They DFA'd Zach Thompson, uh, who, by the way, has been outrighted to AAA, so he remains in the system. He he cleared um, outright waivers and is now uh, back in the system at AAA Buffalo, so potentially depth there if things get more dire in this situation. There's a reason... Bowden Francis got chosen over someone else in this spot. So not to oversell a, a 27-year-old with four starts at AAA this season, but the reason behind that is, is primarily the curveball. And it, and that goes back to a stint in the Puerto Rican uh, Winter League last year where he uncovered something. He had 47 strikeouts in 36 innings. His walk rate dropped significantly as well. And something to take away from that is how he uses his curveball and fastball in tandem. So he also throws a slider. He doesn't throw it a ton. He threw it a bunch in his last AAA start. Um, but in general, it's not a pitch that he's used a ton this year. And then as Madison, and I talked about, he's got a changeup that, but it's mostly a, a show me changeup at, at this point. It's not something he's used with any regularity, but that curveball fastball combination. Um, first of all, the fastball can touch 97, it doesn't get there consistently uh, averages, you know, mid 94s. So 94, 95 primarily, but it can touch 97. He gets a lot of swing and miss with it for a fastball. That's not an elite velocity fastball. Now we don't have all the stack cast tools at AAA that we have in the major league. So, you know, whether that's a, 
is the spin rate crazy? And it's got that kind of rising look to it, even though it's not technically rising. It's got that feel when you're in the batter's box. Is it about his extension? How far down he gets off the mound? If you think of, say, a Jordan Romano, who's six foot five and gets his foot almost down to the end of the dirt before he releases that ball. So it's coming at you over a shorter window of time. Um, those are things that, yes, you can look at it on tape, but I can't get the measuring tape out and see. Maybe those are factors. What I can say, though, is that the fastball and the curveball play really well together. And because he commands the curveball so well, he's able to throw it in all sorts of different counts. He doesn't throw it just in swing and miss counts. In his last AAA start, he got nine called strikes with the curveball. So think about that. You're throwing a big breaker with a good hook to it, and nine times a guy just stares at it for a strike. That's pretty good, and and I do think that being able to throw the curveball for called strikes opens up a lot of options with how and when and where you use the fastball, and that's maybe why a fastball that by velocity is just a solid fastball has been able to play up uh, a little bit more than that as a swing and miss tool. Now, it's also entirely possible that it's four AAA starts and some time in the Puerto Rican Winter League, and maybe that doesn't mean a lot, but again, there's a reason he got the call over someone else, and I think... Those are the reasons why. So, text line time. Why is a guy like Bowden Francis, who wasn't on the 40-man and was outrighted last year, getting the call? Riley asked the question the other day that I've kind of kept in my back pocket. Um, He asks that he can count on, or sorry, he says rather, that he can count on one hand the amount of dominant pitchers the Jays have developed through the organization over the course of his life, and he's 30. Um, Other organizations like the Yankees, Rays, Astros, Braves, Dodgers, etc., seem to be able to constantly replenish their bullpen and starting pitching depth by dipping into the minors. What do these organizations do that the Jays don't? Uh, Is it more of a scouting issue or a development one? That's a really great question, Riley, and I think it's something that the Toronto Blue Jays themselves are probably grappling with a lot right now. And it's been particularly notable for the blue Jays because in the last couple of weeks, they've played the rays and the Astros, the rays who are almost comical in their ability to turn everyone into a useful piece. I, I think the rays as a matter of, you know, long-term success here, just have some, some magic that they sprinkle on guys. Um, I think with them, it's a lot of development stuff because, uh, and I, I think the key thing is identifying something a guy does well and building off of that. And we talked to um, Peter Bendix, the, the general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays a couple weeks ago about just this, about, you know, grabbing a Drew Rasmussen and taking what he does really well and, and building off of that. Um, and, you know, there, there are limits to, hey, focus on what a guy does well, not what he does poorly. But to use Bowden Francis as an example, um, maybe you see that curveball that that has a nice hook to it, that has a good spin rate, that he locates well, and you start thinking about ways to maximize that, even if the fastball is not a lead and the slider, you know, in small sample, it's been fine. But yeah, it doesn't, based on how infrequently he throws it, it seems like maybe there's not a ton of confidence in it. Well, okay, how do you build a pitcher up when the curveball is the primary weapon? How do you look at a Jose Barrios example where the slurve is his best weapon and build a pitcher out from that? How do you teach him a pitch that maybe isn't his best pitch, but complements his best pitch really well? Um, I think that's something that the Rays have done extremely well. Now, the Astros have been more of a talent identification success where we go through that series and we just saw guys who were a fifth round pick, an 11th round pick, a long ago international development signing. And yeah, there's, there's a development component to all of those successes um, because 
you know, you could have every first, every first round pick in the draft. And if you don't develop those guys and foster them, well, um, you're not going to get them to the major leagues and have success with them. Um, the Astros. So, you know, to, to broadly bucket them, I think the Rays have been more about development and finding undervalued pieces elsewhere and getting the most out of them where the Astros have been done a really good job finding guys that they think they can uh, develop and work with over the long term. A team like the Dodgers is they're almost impossible to, to figure out because they're constantly in win now mode and they've traded away so many prospects and they still have the number one system in baseball. It's not even uh it's not even a just on the pitching side thing. Like they just have, like I was looking the other day at a Relvis Martinez's numbers and he obviously has the most home runs in the, in the Jays minor league system and almost the most home runs in all of minor league baseball. And I'm looking at the other leaderboards there and Relvis Martinez is still very, very young for his level. And I'm looking, it's like, is there anyone else who's this young for their level and is hitting a ton, a ton of home runs? And then the Dodgers just have some 19 year old six foot three catcher mashing uh, tons and tons of home runs uh, down at low a ball. Theron Lorenzo, who I don't know. Have you ever heard of Thaylon Lorenzo prior to this year? Well, guess what? He's got 14 home runs as a 19 year old uh, in Abel and he's a catcher. The Dodgers, I think, you know, the, the Dodgers at least get to a little bit of the value and the Yankees as well. There are luxury taxes in baseball. There are international spending limits. There are caps on how many minor league teams you have. But there, are, there aren't really controls on how much you can invest in people and, and developmental infrastructure and things like that. Uh, scouts, even, you know, to take it more old school and get eyes on these guys. So I think that's a component of it as well. Now, what have the Jays not done particularly well? It's an interesting question because the, the Jays are, you know, uh, uh, as far as an analytically oriented front office, there's still a, a premium put on the scouting side there. Uh, they've obviously invested a ton in that Dunedin complex, the pitching lab as they call it. And yeah, they've traded away some of the pitching depth. You know, you, you get, you send out a Simeon Woods Richardson, for example, uh, in the Jose Barrios deal that that's going to have a, a cost to your depth for sure. But you look at the trades that they've made over the years. None of the players they sent to Oakland for Matt Chapman are guys that you're going to be like, Oh, darn shouldn't have traded that for, for Matt Chapman. And you go through their, their trade history and there aren't a lot of, well, it, Nick Frasso is probably going to be one. The Nick Frasso for Mitch White deal, uh, unless Alex DeJesus ends up being the you, the light hitting utility infielder to end all light hitting utility infielders, that's probably one that's not going to age well as Frasso puts up monster strikeout numbers at Double A and you know starts getting talked about as uh, as a potential near term weapon for them. But there aren't too many like that. So what aren't the Jays finding? What aren't they developing? I, I think that this is something when you look back to the addition of James Click in the offseason, um, James Click, who is in a kind of do-everything advisory role in this front office now alongside Shapiro and Atkins, James Click was a longtime member of the Tampa Bay Rays front office. He was the general manager of the Houston Astros when they won the World Series last year. I'm not saying that the Rays and Astros have had success finding and developing pitchers because of James Click, but I think that absorbing some of the lessons from those two organizations and taking a look at some of the best practices from those two organizations can kind of help get you on the right track. I'd also say that, and this is maybe front office speak, so I apologize for this, and it's worth noting this group took over in 2017. It's been five, six years now. This is the time where even if the cupboard was completely bare when you took over, the AAA level should should have more depth than it has right now. That That is clear. I will say 
there's some stuff coming at double A. I mentioned a couple names earlier, Sam Robertsa, um, Adam Kloffenstein seems to have, have found his way back. Chad Dallas is really interesting and, and kind of, I, I think going to rise up some of the mid season prospect lists. And then of, of course there's Ricky Tiedemann whenever he gets back on the mound. I, I do think there is, you know, not, I, I don't think there are waves of pitching coming to use the term that they used initially. Uh, I do think if you look at the lower levels of the minors, they have done a better job more recently. Now we'll see when those guys get to AAA. We'll see when Adam Mako, the other piece in the Swanson Teoscar deal gets to AA. Are, are those guys holding up as they get to higher levels? We'll see because that's been a, that hasn't been the case uh, so far, but I, there is a little bit of optimism that, that things are moving in the right direction there. It's a great question and one we'll continue to grapple with and one I'm sure uh, the front office will as well. Mark from Tilbury says, a couple days ago, I mentioned I have an Alexis on fire tattoo. Yeah, because uh, the Golden Knights are, are steal my shine. Um, and he asks what it is. So I have, can you see it on here? Yeah. Uh, so I have a Tin Man tattoo. It's not just an Alexis on fire tattoo. It's also just a Tin Man tattoo. But if you know the song Boiled Frogs, uh, that is a, a reference that's in there. And, and then Mark also asks, why is uh, the best Alexis on fire album crisis? And, and the answer is, well, you're correct. Mark, it is, it, it is. It's uh, you know, you want to talk about batting orders. I, and this is something I've talked about before. I, I use the, um, the batting order theory of album sequencing. Like what, how should you lay out the track list and you can get really specific where, you know, your one hitter maybe isn't your best hitter, but you want that to be a tone setter and you maybe want that to be a, an upper beat or a faster song. Your two hitter should be your best hitter, all else equal. Your four hitter should be really, really strong as well. In some order, your two hitter and your four hitter. So your second track and your four track uh, should be very, very good. And then your number three being traditionally the best hitter spot. So maybe something that has, uh, you know, the most radio playability, even if it's not your absolute best song. And then you can kind of go from there, however you want. Uh, so I believe in that way of sequencing album tracks. And I think crisis is a, is a really good example of that to keep it baseball. By the way, um, Alexa on fire and, and my buddies in pop playing bud stage next week, we gave away tickets to that show, uh, on this show, uh, a couple weeks back, uh, looking forward to that. And we'll have some music tie-ins on Jay's talk plus, next week, not to give anything uh, away just yet. Staying on the, the pitching track, um, a, Al in Niagara, rather, sorry, um, asks, with all the question about depth within the organization as it relates to starting pitching, is there a lack because the Jays are trying to mold pitchers in they want into who they want instead of letting them be who they are and fine-tuning that? Um, Al in Niagara, that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at there with, with some of what the Rays do. Um, it's a hard question to answer without, you know, being in those rooms or, or being, you know, on top of a prospect's development from the low A level uh, all the way up through. I certainly think that what we've read about some teams around baseball and how they try to normalize um, pitching development, I, I think there is a, a real risk to having monotony in, in your pitching system and having kind of a, a one-size-fits-all for pitching development. So uh, I don't know if that's particularly the case with the Blue Jays, but I do think that in general, uh, your point is a good one in that one size doesn't fit all for um, pitching development necessarily. Uh, Kyle and Woodstock asks, uh, I understand that signing a pitcher off the scrap heap won't help right now because they have to build up strength as a starter. That said, why not sign a couple now uh, so that the in the event someone goes down in a month, there's more depth. Um, the issue with that one, Kyle, is that a lot of these guys who are on the discard pile are still sitting out there as free agents. Um, if they were willing to sign just to be triple a depth, they probably would have around baseball already. You know, maybe a uh, Chris Archer gets the itch 
in a little bit here and he didn't have it quite yet or was still coming back from that pec issue or something like that, you know, maybe a Dallas Keuchel wants to give it one more go, things like that. But in general, I think that the difficulty with doing that is convincing guys who have been major leaguers uh, and haven't been in the minors a while to go down to the minors on, on a maybe. And how do you have those conversations? How do you compensate that? How do you figure out a timeline? Um, how do you navigate all that without making uh, without making promises that, that you not, can't necessarily keep? That's the job of the front office, absolutely. And I, I think you should be looking at one, two, whatever. You, you should get in whoever you can. But I think the reality is if you went to, say, Chris Archer, Dallas Keiko, and Mike Faltenovitz uh, and said, hey, we want to sign all three of you for, for AAA Buffalo, and we might need one of you in the coming weeks, all three of those guys would probably say uh, no. You can pay. You can pick one of us and let one of us know that we're the next guy up and see how that works out. But we're not going to all sign and compete for those spots. Uh, just thinking realistically. AJ in Brampton says he's always been a Marcus Stroman guy. Would you want the Jays to go after him at the deadline? Uh, I think yes. Uh, that that's on a strictly merit and how good a pitcher he is uh, level. If I'm remembering correctly, his exit from the franchise was not particularly smooth, and I, I don't know what the relationship might be like with, with this front office at, at this point. Marcus Stroman is a very good pitcher and a really fun guy to watch. So uh, strictly on the pitching side, yeah, absolutely. Uh, those are other questions that I... My last memory of Marcus Stroman in Toronto, actually, is I was covering for... So Kayla McGrath at the trade deadline one year when I was at The Athletic as a Raptors writer, um, I would swoop in sometimes and do some Jays stuff. And a couple days before the trade deadline, Caitlin was already in Kansas City for the next series. So I was filling in just in case something happened. And that was the day the Marcus Stroman trade happened. And he, like, stormed out of the locker room at one point and almost knocked me over. That is my last interaction with Marcus Stroman. So I I'd wonder if that's his last uh, his last memory of of this franchise and this front office uh, as well. Robbie asks about Chris Archer specifically. Yeah, I mean he's he's as reasonable a target as anyone. I, I guess my big question with Archer would be um, he kind of got shut down late last year with a with a pec injury, and because he hasn't been playing for any team, we don't really know what the status of that is. Is he healthy? Has he been pitching? What does that look like? Um, obviously, he's a guy that even you know. You could frame his year with the Minnesota Twins last year as being a quote-unquote failure. Um, he still threw 100 innings with a 450 ERA. It's not like he was bad, bad. He just kind of got hurt down the stretch and wasn't effective enough for the Twins to pick up that $10 million option they had on his deal. So as reasonable a, a question as anyone. Um, someone who didn't sign there is asked if we can stop referring to Manoa as the ace. Gosman is the ace. Yes, I, I have been very careful to say presumed ace because he started – the season opener, he started the home opener, um, and he was, by ERA at least, their best pitcher last year. He got those nods this year. Uh, so I say presumed ace just to say that, you know, he was in that number one slot to start the year. I don't think anyone's arguing that Kevin Gosman uh, is the ace of this staff right now. Um, getting off of the the pitching thing just, just quickly here, uh, Rob ask this was a twitter question uh curious as to whether we judge teams possibilities of securing a playoff spot or wildcard spot based on their position around the all-star game so I, I think what rob's asking there is you know we talk about oh it's it's a little early still maybe you don't standings gaze just yet is the all-star break in mid-july a reasonable enough time to, to start looking at that stuff and i think so um you know you can always look at the standings I mention them pretty much every show just as a, a matter of updating and a matter of highlighting how ridiculous the American League East is. 
I think with something like wildcard, you don't necessarily care about games behind and things like that right now, as you do how many teams are close and how many teams are in the competition. You know, who do you have the tiebreakers over things like that? I think are already worth taking a look at, you know, the Jays locking up the season tiebreaker against the Astros yesterday could be meaningful uh, down the line in terms of if, if Rob, if your question is more about, you know, playoff odds at fan graphs or baseball reference or something like that. I think first of all, it's a little early for that. And second of all, those models might have some trouble this year because, and we talked to Dan Zimborski of fan graphs, who who's the creator of zips a little bit about this earlier in the week, the extreme polarity in the American league is something that we've dealt with it a little bit in the past, but never to this extent where the AL central and the Oakland Athletics are so unspeakably bad that any projection system is going to be like, well, something here has to regress. Like the A's can't possibly be the 1899 Cleveland Spiders for 162 games. The AL Central can't possibly have no teams finishing at 500. There will be some regression baked in there for those teams and an element of, you know, the AL Central teams get to play the AL Central teams, even in a, even with a more balanced schedule this year. Um, I, I would say that, I'd like a little time to see how those projection systems are handling that the American league has seven or eight really, really good teams. And then five or six comically bad ones Uh, that makes projections uh, a little more difficult. It is a good question though. Um, Have a couple on Kirk. Oh, uh, Owen from Caledonia first says rough hands in the nine spot hits like Kiermaier on, on crisis by Alex on fire. That's a great a great comp there. Kiermaier trying to lead the league in hits from the nine spot, having rough hands there. That's a, a great call, Owen. Um, Tyler from Regina wants me to check the numbers uh, that Kirk seems to hit well and play defense better when Jansen is on the IL and he's getting in there more regularly, uh, especially this year with Belt as the primary DH. Uh, how do you continue to get Kirk's bat in the lineup to maintain his success? This is a really interesting question, Tyler, especially for the catcher position because you know, short of Adley Rutschman and JT Realmuto, I guess Tyler Stevenson lately, but teams can't have their catcher in there every day. Buster Posey wasn't in there every single day as much as you wanted him to be. Um, Joe Maurer moved to first, even when he was still a pretty solid defensive catcher, because, you know, the workload there doesn't allow your bat to be in the lineup every single day. Um, Buster Posey had some seasons where he played in the high one forties of games, uh, you may be wonder if that's why the the drop off was pretty sudden once he hit 30 years old, but also like that made him one of the most valuable players in baseball for six or seven years. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you move those things around. I think what you'd see when Jansen's back and even if belt keeps, keeps hitting this level uh, against lefties, maybe belt sits down a little more often. Uh, we heard the team talk yesterday before Kiermaier got hit on the hand and, and Varsho had to come in. Part of the reason they, they sat Varsho against a tough lefty wasn't just that, you know, the lefty lefty matchup and Varsho's hitting 250 off lefties this year anyway. Um, but Varsho's in a nice groove right now where you maybe don't want to upset that groove by having him change his approach against a tough lefty. Maybe you think similarly with belt and that lets you get Kirk, uh, steal Kirk a couple DH days there um, with Jansen coming back. Maybe you you're in a situation where, Hey Jansen, you had been eating up more of the the starts before you got hurt, but now Kirk's got the lion's share and you'll have to hit your way and play your way back into a larger share there. Uh, in general, I, I think it's a, a fascinating question, Tyler, just about, Uh, teams when they have a a good hitting catcher in general, because I I would imagine someone like Kirk, who's 
um, a cerebral hitter and has such great, great approach at the plate and, and has such great plate appearances, you know, is there a rhythm to that? Is there a flow? Are, are you better able to judge those, those plate appearances and have a comfort zone with your line drive approach when you're in there every day and seeing a lot of pitches? I would believe it. Uh, the counter to that is you're probably, unless you're Buster Posey and you're looking at a six-year window to, to maximize things, uh, you're probably going to break down if you're catching every day. I don't think Kirk playing 16 times in 20 days uh, is sustainable. So a uh, good question there, Tyler, and one we'll certainly monitor as Jansen gets back to health next week. Uh, last one here from Troy. Um, in the bottom of the fifth, after he hit the double, if Jansen is healthy, does he get pulled for a pinch runner? Um, Belt gets pulled for a pinch runner uh, in a similar spot in the eighth, and it's a, it's a done deal. The fifth inning is probably a little early. Um, if it's a high leverage spot, maybe you start to think about it. Certainly if it's a must win game you, you and, and it's projecting as a close game, you think about it, but you have to balance there, not only using your backup catcher early, but you probably lose two plate appearances from Kirk uh, the rest of the way there. So the, the fifth is a, a little early for a catcher spot. It's, it's early enough. If it were a straight platoon, say, and Kirk gets a hit off a lefty and you know a, a righty's coming in uh, and your your other catcher is a lefty and you're going to make that switch at some point anyway. Like we saw the Twins do that a couple times uh, against the Blue Jays with really early substitutions because, say, Kikuchi had started and the Blue Jays' bullpen is very right-handed heavy. You get a little bit more leeway with that. Um, anyway, that's all we're going to have time for today in terms of questions. Thanks so much for everyone who sent those in. Those are some some very high-quality uh, questions, fun to sort through some of that stuff at a high level. Um, especially thank you as well to uh, Caitlin McGrath for joining us, Brandon Warren of Access Twins, Madison Shipman, who, again, you can catch, out, uh, catch on Blue Jay Central on sports at television all weekend, and she'll be in the mix with us moving forward. Also got to thank Jeff as a party behind the glass producer, Lance Kennedy, Jennifer Rolnick, uh, and you guys, this has been a fun week. A lot of good baseball from the Toronto blue Jays, despite some ancillary nonsense from Anthony Bass. Um, Jays have won 10 of their last 13. They're playing a Minnesota twins team. That's in a bad way right now is dip below 500. You say Kikuchi against Sonny Gray today as they look to keep it rolling. Have a great weekend. Everyone Jays talk plus back Monday.